Who was Taylor Fellers? And why were he and his men known as the Suicide Wave? Turns out they were the ones specially selected to be the very first to land on Omaha Beach. Welcome to season three of Unknown History D-Day Stories. I'm your host, Giles Milton. And today we're talking about the most terrible and controversial landing to take place on D-Day. The plight of the first wave of American troops to land on Omaha Beach has come to symbolize everything that's terrible about war. Few who've seen Steven Spielberg saving Private Ryan can ever forget the sight of hundreds of young American soldiers being gunned down on the beach by heavily armed German defenders. What happened to the first wave of soldiers to land on Omaha was indeed terrible, but it was very different from how it was depicted in Saving Private Ryan. Here, brought to you by Unknown History, is the real story of what happened on bloody Omaha between the hours of six and seven in the morning. It begins not with an American, but with a Brit, a 23-year-old British sea captain named Jimmy Green. He'd already spent a year escorting naval convoys through the treacherous seas of the North Atlantic and a further year working with the British commandos and the American Rangers. Now he was entrusted with ferrying the first wave of American troops to Omaha Beach. It was all part of the Anglo-American cooperation on D-Day that often gets overlooked. Jimmy Green had been most impressed by the American Rangers but he felt rather less confident when he met the young lads of A Company, 116th Infantry, the ones due to be the very first on the beach. They were, he said, a friendly but shy bunch of freshly-faced country lads who must have felt at home in Ivory Bridge, Devon, where they trained for the invasion. He found them polite and kindly, a group of helpful young men who were used to running errands for the elderly in their hometowns but they were entirely lacking the warlike spirit of the Rangers. Their leader was a clean-shaven young man named Taylor Fellers, a construction foreman in his previous life, who was a sort of community mainstay that could be found in any number of towns in the Blue Ridge foothills of Virginia. Jimmy Green found him very serious, thoughtful officer who seemed a lot older than our sailors who were in their late teens or early twenties. Yet the more he got to know Fellers, the more he felt a nagging sense of anguish, not just for Fellers himself, but also for the young men under his command. Their task was a formidable one. They had to capture one of the four ravines that cut a path upwards through the steep cliffs behind Omaha Beach. It was a narrow track that provided the only vehicular access to the town of Verville-sur-Mer, It would have been a tall order, even for the finest troops, but far more so for a band of teenagers who, to Jimmy Green's eyes, seemed, at best, an inexperienced assault group. Allied planners had divided Omaha Beach into seven sections, each with its own codename. Charlie, Dog Green, Dog White, Dog Red, Easy Green, Easy Red and Fox Green. Each section was to be assaulted by a designated company, with Taylor Fellers's men of A Company leading the vanguard onto Dog Green. What made their mission all the more difficult was the fact that Omaha Beach had been heavily fortified with pillboxes, reinforced bunkers and machine gun posts. All were connected by a zigzagging maze of trenches manned by German snipers. 
The young men of A Company were in high spirits as they boarded their landing craft at 4.30 in the morning and prepared to head towards Omaha Beach. Each of the six boats contained 31 youths who were to be in the vanguard of the attack. They were a tightly knit band who trained together for more than a year. Many had even closer ties. 30 of them came from the same hometown of Bedford in Virginia. They felt part of one big family. Although the early morning air was moist and chill, it did nothing to diminish the camaraderie of the men of A Company, nor did the fact that they'd been nicknamed the Suicide Wave on account of being the first to land. One of them went so far as to say it was a badge of honour and something that we felt with pride. Most brushed off the idea of death with the casual abandon of carefree teenagers. We all expected to come back. The British naval captain Jimmy Green noticed the atmosphere changed dramatically as the young men boarded the landing craft and prepared for the run into the beach. The jokes and banter came to an abrupt end. I think they were realising that this was it. Those who did talk were quiet and subdued. The landing craft set off under the cover of darkness and they were still five miles from the beach when they came across a second little flotilla laden with tanks. What the hell are these doing here? asked an incredulous Green. The tanks were meant to land on the shore in advance of the infantry and should, therefore, have been far closer to land. Fellers was visibly shocked. They're supposed to be ahead of us, he said. This was a crucial part of the landing plan. Without tanks already on the beaches, the young men of A Company would have no artillery support. They're not going to make it, said Green, who realised they were woefully behind schedule. He turned to Fellers with a grim face. We've got to go in and leave them behind. Is that all right? Yes, replied Fellers. We've got to be there on time. He tried to put a brave face on this unexpected mishap, yet he felt a sense of impending disaster. A fundamental part of the plan had gone seriously awry. A second vital element had also gone wrong. Allied rocket ships were supposed to bombard the beach in order to create craters that would provide shelter for the newly landed troops. But all of the rockets missed their target, and most splashed into the sea more than a quarter of a mile from the beach. One of the youngsters spoke for everyone when he gave a cynical shout. Well, there go our holes on the beach. Several nodded grimly, aware that without craters, they would have absolutely no cover against German gunfire. Many more were too sick to care, vomiting into their helmets on account of the pitching, tossing sea. Jimmy Green felt depressed at the thought of sending the youths into such danger. As he drew his craft closer to the shoreline, he spotted the first of many pillboxes hidden among the dunes. Where exactly do you want me to land? he asked Taylor Fellers as the two of them studied the approaching shore. Fellers pointed to the deep ravine that led to the top of the cliffs and said he wanted to land on the right-hand side. Jimmy Green nodded, cranked up the engines and began to draw away from the other craft. He was intending to hit the shore at full speed, dodging any obstacles as he thrust the craft forward. A handful of shells landed harmlessly in the water, but there was so little enemy fire that he wondered if the pillboxes and dugouts were empty. There was a loud crunch as the landing craft ground to a halt in the shingle that lay some 20 yards offshore. The ramp went down and Taylor Fellers waded through the breaking surf towards the beach, closely followed by his comrades. Still, there was no gunfire. As Jimmy Green surveyed the scene, he felt a strange sense of the unreal. 
It was clear that the cliffs and sand dunes were heavily fortified, yet not a single bullet ran out as Taylor Fellers crunched his way up the beach. Indeed, nothing moved. Green had landed the 31 men into what he described as an unearthly silence. He'd been planning to cover the men with his machine guns, but there was no need, for they were now all ashore and crouched on the ridge of shingle. Seeing that all was well, Green ordered his radio man to send a message of reassurance to their mothership, Empire Javelin. It was upbeat, truthful, and just four words long. Landed against light opposition. Omaha's defences had proved a walkover. Or so it seemed. Fire, Wegner, fire! Lance Corporal Lang was screaming at the teenage German conscript Karl Wegner, ordering him to let rip with his machine gun. It was now or never. The invading troops were landing on a beach that was almost totally exposed. They could be mown down with very little effort. But Wegner had temporarily frozen, partly out of panic and partly because he realised the enormity of what he was about to do. I saw all those men in olive-brown uniforms splashing through the water towards the sand. They looked young and vulnerable, so unprotected in the wide-open space of the beach. He felt deeply disturbed at the idea of cutting them down with his bullets. Lance Corporal Lang sensed his fear and took the butt of his pistol, crashing it down on the top of his helmet. This had the desired effect. Karl Wegner yanked hard on the trigger. The machine gun roared, sending hot lead into the men running along the beach. Some collapsed into the sand. I knew I'd hit them. Others were desperately seeking cover, only to find there was no shelter on that exposed beach. The bullets ripped up and down the sand. It was so easy to kill. It took so little energy. My mind rationalised it, said Wigner. This was war. His job was to kill, annihilate the first wave of American troops to land on Omaha Beach. He did it with chilling efficiency. The second wave of troops to land on that stretch of beach were the young men of B Company, who trained with their buddies in Taylor Fellers' team and become close friends. One of them, Howard Baumgarten, had originally been in A Company and had only been transferred at the last minute. He was looking forward to being reunited with his friends on the beach. But he grew increasingly alarmed as his landing craft neared the shore. Baumgarten could hear machine gun fire and the muffled crack of exploding mortars. Of his friends in A Company, there was no sign whatsoever. And now, within minutes, it would be his turn to land on that same stretch of beach. Drop the ramp! Come on, goddammit! Keep your heads down! Let's go! Baumgarten jumped into the waist-deep water just as a German machine gun opened up on the ramp. Clarius Riggs was the first to be mown down, killed in a spray of bullets. Next to fall was Robert Dittmar, who collapsed onto the beach. He was screaming in shock and agony. I'm hit! I'm hit! He ended up sprawled on the damp sand, with his head facing the Germans, his face looking skyward. He was still screaming, Mother! Mom! Keep your heads down! My God! Trying to make it in! Sergeant Barnes had just reached the beach when he was shot in front of Baumgarten. Four others were bleeding to death in the sand. It was a tableau so macabre, so terrifying in intensity, that it seemed surreal. Men with guts hanging out of their wounds, said one, and body parts lying along our path. All around Baumgarten, fountains of sand were being kicked up by exploding shells. A monster shell exploded some 20 yards from where he was lying in the sand. A cataclysmic bang and a wave of lethal fragments. Baumgarten felt it as if he'd been hit with a baseball bat, only the results were much worse. 
My upper jaw was shattered. The left cheek was blown away. My upper lip was cut in half. The roof of my mouth was cut up and teeth and gums were lying all over my mouth. It was by now clear what had happened to his buddies in A Company. The unearthly silence that had greeted Taylor Fellers and his men had been carefully orchestrated by the Germans. Karl Wegner and his comrades had held their fire until all the troops were ashore. Only then did they start shooting. Fellers and his men were hit from the left, from the right and from above. They didn't stand a chance. Jimmy Green, the British captain who ferried them to the beach, was horrified when he learned that every lad from his landing craft had been killed. It would haunt him for the rest of his life. I was in some way responsible for putting them there, he said. I can still see those fresh-faced boys getting out of the boat. The post-battle report would describe the first ten minutes of the Omaha landings with chilling simplicity. A Company had ceased to be an assault company and had become a forlorn little rescue party bent on survival. This was true enough. Taylor Fellers' mission had ended in slaughter and it remained to be seen if the Americans would ever capture Omaha Beach. If you want to know what happened next, then do stay tuned to Unknown History for I'll be following up the story of Omaha Beach in a later episode in the series. This week's Unknown History snippet is about a topic that's been overlooked for far too long. The massive minefields that have been laid in the sea, just offshore from the beaches. A staggering six million mines had been laid in the tidal waters, and they presented a potentially catastrophic threat to the Allied landing craft. Minesweepers had been able to clear safe passages through the deeper waters far offshore, but there was only one way to clear the passages through the minefields close to the beaches, and that was to send frogmen into the sea in the hours before dawn on the 6th of June. One of those frogmen was Wally Blanchard, whose task was to clear the mines offshore from Gold Beach. It was an unenviable task. It was freezing in the water, and there was a very real chance of being spotted by German lookouts. Diffusing a mine was hard enough on land, but far more hazardous when done underwater, where the unpredictable current could easily hurl a diver against the very objects he was trying to destroy. The corrosive effect of salt water was no less dangerous. It had rendered many of the mines unstable. Once the mines were all wired up together, Blanchard had to detonate them and blow them all sky high. In doing so, and thereby clearing a passage to the beach, he and the other frogmen of D-Day saved many hundreds of Allied lives. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Unknown History. In the next episode, we'll be investigating the extraordinary story of two brothers who landed together on Juno Beach. <laughs>